0: Hi, podcast subscribers and listeners, and a big hello to the lovely ones of you who pledged their financial support. Thanks to you, we are community funded. We remain unfunded by government or corporations, something of which we are very proud. You may or may not know that you can watch our weekly show, The Laura Flanders Show, on CUNY TV, Free Speech TV, Link TV, and at our website, lauraflanders.org, free. And thanks to your generous support, we are on our way to airing this program on American public television this fall, which means that even more people will have access to our sort of solutions-oriented journalism. If you have yet to join our team by becoming a member, you can always make a one-time donation at lauraflanders.org forward slash donate or become a partner and commit 3 or $5 a month, as so many of you have. That's at our Patreon site, patreoncom ncom forward slash the LF show. And don't forget, partners have access to audio exclusives, including uncut interviews from our Forward Thinking on COVID-19 series. Again, that's lauraflanders.org slash donate. Help keep us putting the naysayers to shame. And thank you. Here's this week's show. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real-life models of shifting power from the few to the many in the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, and governance. This week, comics can pack a political punch, and our guests do just that. First off, Mohammed Sabane, who describes how he transposes his lived experience to the page, exposing the cruelties of Israeli occupation and celebrating popular resistance. Then, Nate Powell uses his art to break down a specifically American phenomenon, the creep of fascist aesthetics into our police and consumer choices. That's all coming up on The Laura Flanders Show, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Welcome. With little coverage and even less sign of much world concern about the ongoing disaster in Palestine, our guest, Mohamed Sabadne, has turned to graphic art. He's lived in Ramallah with war his entire life, even spending five months in Israeli detention, much of it in solitary confinement. He's also the lead political cartoonist for the daily paper Al-Hayat al Jadida. He says he is part of the struggle, but his weapon of choice is his art. White and Black, political cartoons from Palestine. His new book was inspired by his detention. His art's been described as social surrealism. He's won the Medaille d'Or at the Marseille Cartooning Festival, And last four, he was featured in an exhibition and gala at the United Nations. Mohammed, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your work. Um, I'm feeling compelled to say I'm sorry you have to do it, or I'm sorry your subjects have to be what they are. But I'm glad you're doing your work. Yeah. What do you think you can communicate through cartooning that those of us in traditional news maybe can't?
1: maybe because of the cartoon is uh, like visual language it's very easy for all of this in, in audience from around the world to understand it uh, without any need to translate this this cartoon because my my artwork without any text without any dialogue and this just visual language and that's why it's very easy to the audience or the people around the world to understand it without any need to explain it or uh, to translate it. And that's why I think it is one of the most important tool we can use it as a Palestinian uh, to, to talk about or to convey our yeah. severing here, there in, in Palestine.
0: What do people here need to know? Because in our world, most of us, this isn't a story that we are brought very reliably, very consistently.
1: I think the most important thing that the people they should know here in the United States that not all of these people in Gaza, they are, uh, military uh, and fighters for freedom. most of them they are civilian, most of them they are uh, kids who have been killed in Gaza, been attacked uh, and facing all of this atrocity, all of this uh, brutality from from one of the most strongest army in the Middle East. And by all of this technology, they are fighting, they are destroying schools, channels for for television. Uh, killing s- civilians in Gaza. And that's w- what uh, the people should know here, not just in the United States and even around the world.
0: Although in the United States, yeah. we have the connection of helping to supply that
1: yeah. military. And th- th- unfortunately, yeah. But here in the United States, also you could find a lot of people they are supporting my people and support uh, the people in, in, in Palestine, not just in Gaza and also in the West Bank, as I mentioned.
0: Your book, I, had to, I couldn't help but notice, in white and black, the, the cartoons, many of them, the characters have no mouths.
1: This character I created when the first hunger strike having Palestinian uh, Resonar launched the first hunger strike. That means they can do. and There is no need to talk. There is no need to, to eat. But they can do. They can act against this uh, uh, occupation, even when they are inside the Israeli prison, they can act and they can resist against this ugliness.
0: So hence the no mouth.
1: Yeah. And that's why when I came up with this idea, I, I could use this character as a Palestinian resistance who want to act against this occupation by, by any, any way.
0: Now you're acting, you're making this art how? It looks like, is it lino cuts? Is that, is that how you're making the work?
1: N- not all of my artwork in this book are linoleum cut. Most of them linoleum cut. Some of them by ink and just a few artwork in this book by computer. Would you like to just talk us through some of your work? I tried to depict Gaza because Gaza look like a big prison surrounded by all these military, uh, the wall, checkpoints, and the border. I tried to, to talk about what 's going on in Gaza, not just because of the great marsh return marsh uh, what 's going on in Gaza have been happening for more than ten years now, and uh, I think no one cares about what 's going on there
0: well, and what you have here is also the checkpoint, which is all about looking and observing yeah but we can 't see anything
1: yeah, because i I think we need more to, to more concentrate on what's going on in Gaza from the human perspective because it's very important to understand that the the people there without water without electricity without opportunity to live as a human being they cannot travel outside they are in the prison yeah
0: so let's look at another one what's that that's
1: it's mean for me a lot of kind of of death not just because of the occupation and this this one not just about the Palestinian. It's about the kids around the world. Maybe we can talk about the kids in, in now in al Yemen, in Palestine, uh, in Syria, and all of these kids who being killed around the world, uh, not just because of one reason. There is a lot of reason: the the the, the poor situation, uh, the military uh, acting, the the, the extremists from around the world. And that's why I did this cartoon.
0: So that one speaks to me of the courage it takes for a kid to grow up and face all that at all.
1: This one's talking about the great march in Gaza that's this this woman tried to 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 make the Palestinian fl- flag from this this uh, wire and, Razor wire yeah and it's it's look like it's something emotional for the people around the world that's that's how the Palestinian women's also participating in in our resist against this occupation mm. because there is a great uh, role for the, the Palestinian women in, in, in our resist.
0: I couldn't help but also think looking at that and this just reflects how your work works. Our president has put rolls and rolls and rolls of razor wire, barbed wire on the border of the US and Mexico. United and State, to me yeah. that piece also speaks to the work that women and others are putting in to making from all of that ugliness although the president thinks it can be beautiful a new vision and a, a new idea of a nation of a state of people. I I think he's
1: lamenting the same idea of the state of Israel now. He wants to build the wall. He wants to stop the immigrant. It is the same. It's an
0: exclusionary nationalist state. Yeah. (laughs) So we're in the same boot, you and I. Yeah. Kind of.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have to do cartoon also. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, so
0: much. Thank you. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. That was artist and political cartoonist Mohammed Sabatney. He is lead political cartoonist for the daily paper Al Hayat Al Jadida, and his new book is White and Black: Political Cartoons from Palestine. You can see his work by watching this week's episode at our website. That's www.lauraflanders.org. And if you've yet to subscribe to our podcast, do it there or through your favorite podcast app. Next, Nate Powell joins me to discuss how he's using his graphic art to bring awareness to a particularly American phenomenon, the creep of fascist aesthetics into our police and fashion choices. You've probably seen images of heavily armed U.S. soldiers in wraparound sunglasses walking through dusty villages in far-off places. The same aesthetics are showing up among the U.S. police, too, and they're being adopted by the country's burgeoning white nationalist movement. What do the dark glasses hide, and how is it that comic book symbols are migrating into a deadly macho white identity? Today we sit down with Nate Powell, the first cartoonist to receive a National Book Award and the author of About Face. It's a graphic novel essay published on popular.com. Nate's work traditionally explores militarism, memory, and culture in the American hinterland through a collage of kind of journalism and journaling. About Face centers the commodification of paramilitary aesthetics and the complacent creep of white supremacy in the U.S. while exposing the threat that G.I. Joe Manchild poses to all of us. Nate, welcome to the program and congratulations on the National Book Award.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Is cartoonist an, a politically okay term or is graphic artist always mandatory?
2: No, I mean cartoonist I think is the most accurate description. Yeah, okay, I, fair enough.
0: <laughs> Did you grow up doing cartoons?
2: Yeah, well, I started drawing uh, at about age three and when I hit junior high school started making and self-publishing. Uh, my own work, and really what I do now is no different than what I was doing in 1992.
0: You go back to your childhood in About Face, you start right there, with your not atypical fascination with G.I. Joe.
2: You bet, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I grew up in a you know, multi-generational military family as a G.I. Joe kid in the Cold War. And you were in the South? Yeah, stationed in Alabama, Arkansas, uh, and a little bit in Montana as well. A lot of my G.I. Joe kid, Cold War upbringing provided room to begin to ask more complex questions and, and generate dialogue back and forth, especially with my dad, uh, to get a little more of his perspective on his service, on contradictions, on, on things that push people to serve, but then sort of moving forward from that and moving through punk rock and moving into publishing and moving into my own expression. Once I became an adult, finally I had an outlet for pushing that childhood discussion further and bringing it into the 21st century.
0: You you start the book saying that it is about style as a normalizing force, it's something that you suggest had been
2: of interest to you even as a kid, but became increasingly serious. Certainly, <laughs> uh, in general, this this essay came from a slow accumulation of observations in my own community, but also reflecting upon what I was seeing. Uh, develop over the last five or six years as compared to my childhood military brat knowledge of military regulations and changes in dress code, changes in facial hair guidelines, especially once the Iraq War part two of the endless Middle Eastern conflict kicked in, uh, recognizing the ways in which those aesthetic changes were being brought back from overseas service uh, into law enforcement private security, and then into civilian life. So
0: explain it. I mean, if you think of G.I. Joe, or if you, at least if you think of the military in the area you were growing up, pretty firm rules about haircuts Certainly. and facial hair and uniforms and uniforms with identification.
2: A lot of this historically had to do with not just military, but paramilitary groups evolving in a Adapting some of the lessons of guerrilla and insurgent warfare during the Vietnam War. So, what you'll find is like by the mid 2000s, certain special forces units and privatized mercenary groups in Central Asia and the Middle East gained certain advantages uh, in terms of growing facial hair, having a more approachable demeanor for certain locals, but also being identified by locals by their facial hair as being more prone to abuses of power and violence. Mm. I guess some of that popped up on the radar first once the quickly mythologized tale of you know, Navy SEAL Team 6 uh, of Chris Kyle started to emerge and brought into the forefront the Punisher Skull being the icon of the Marvel Comics anti-hero. The Punisher.
0: So explain that a little bit more and who his creator was and what he thought he was creating.
2: So The Punisher was a character who debuted in 1974 at the close of the Vietnam War and co-created by Jerry Conway, but sort of to symbolize not just veterans concerns and disaffectation, but also sort of the breaking of a social contract in terms of turning the rule of law on its head, when we're discussing comic book antiheroes, we're really discussing vigilante justice, mm. and I mean that's as old as Batman. He is a vigilante, and in that case, he is an antihero. But in the 1970s, we saw this real upticking in uh, in antihero comic book characters. The Punisher, I think, being the the most visible. Um, but I think the the voice lent to a lot of veterans' legitimate concerns, also paved way for a sense of aggrievement and entitlement outside of that pool. And so it developed a symbolic life of its own. And when brought back stateside in the 21st century, you'll find it being used almost immediately after the murder of Michael Brown. You'll start to see police departments incorporating the Punisher icon into some of their cars. I think the first major story was in Kentucky. There was a a sheriff's department or police department which started painting them on all their cars. And this sort of spreads in a viral way, but it doesn't really settle and normalize itself until it escapes the specific context of law enforcement or private security. Once it becomes normalized as consumer goods for civilians, for us to purchase, to consume, it sort of gains enough plausible deniability as being uh, woven into these facets of, mm. of power and of force uh, that becomes that much more pervasive.
0: This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest is Nate Powell. He's the first cartoonist to have received a National Book Award for his collaboration with Congressman John Lewis on the book March, documenting the march from Montgomery to Selma. His most recent book is About Face, a graphic novel essay published on Popular. You can see examples of his work and see more clearly what we're talking about at our website. That is Laura flanders.org while you're there sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and follow us on social media don't forget you sharing your posts with your friends and relations and tagging your community radio station is doing big favors for both us and that station you help to spread the word and you help to advance the news that programming like this exists thank you for doing your part it takes a village Next, I ask Nate to dig down deeper into how the creep of fascist aesthetics with beards and dark wraparound glasses is making its way into our police and fashion choices while fueling a kind of vigilante culture that's playing out in the streets. Here's The Burning City by Q. Burns Abstract Message from his album Audio Total. So it should be obvious, but in case it's not, I want you to tease out a little bit more. What does taking on that persona enable a person or people to do that they couldn't do when they were just G.I. Joe with the haircut and the uniform and the obedience?
2: Well, I mean, generally speaking, we're really talking about the notion of, of sovereignty as it relates to being above the law, mm-hmm. which becomes particularly dangerous when we were talking about enforcers of the law. You're not kidding. And and so, I think its symbolic value has has rested in this decade uh, as a signifier of force and justice, regardless of the rule of law. It's sort of part and parcel of a declaration of grieved white male America declaring itself to be above the law uh, in a particular cross-section. To really be more specific, that's in accordance with a long tradition of living and acting above the law, just call as it, a product of privilege.
0: You call it white allowance? Yes, yes. White a male allowance? Certainly. How does gender play out in all of this? I saw in your beautiful piece just one gendered female character who seems to be the vampire.
2: Right, uh, and that was a quick reference to to Dracula and to the allure of submission to power. So, like, there's there's that great sexy scene in the book Dracula, uh, in which there are these sort of like she vampires who seduce uh, Jonathan Harker. Because your point uh, is, this is also seductive. Oh, certainly, certainly, uh, and. I mean, even as a kid, you know, with my dad sort of giving his cautions, his cautionary descriptions of military service and the requirements in recognizing that one of the primary functions in basic training and in a lot of these regulations was to sort of whittle away at the edges of individuality uh, and the the willingness to you know question to to question orders or to question your role in a larger a larger system. Uh, but Dracula, I think, perfectly. Uh, embodies and describes the allure of sort of taking one's own agency away, uh, the the allure of simply following orders, uh, the allure of not worrying about the moral distinctions or the questions that you may bear responsibility for if someone else mm. is uh, is passing those orders down to you. And that's something I was cautioned about from my dad from his from his perspective of experience. But, uh, but
0: to go back to the gender question, is yes, this just a guy thing?
2: I'd say dominantly it is. It has a lot to do with a sense of entitlement, yeah. with a continuation of privileges that, that some people perceive as being threatened. It's also true that you know, when we're on the verge of building towards a more egalitarian society, those accustomed to privilege might perceive a lot of equality as feeling like oppression for themselves. Mm.
0: So here we have a whole lot of aesthetics, a whole lot of aesthetic symbols migrating from vigilante military to armed force enforcement policing here to now kind of white power movements. And we're seeing what looked like arson attacks on four churches burnt to the ground, black churches in Louisiana, yes. an attack on our precious Highlander school, leaving a symbol of white supremacy right there on the, on the grounds. Who's accountable? I mean, are the military accountable? Is the police accountable? These are big institutions. And what about right. our corporate America that is propagating the what you call a commercial design cycle, I think, or a cyclical design? Are there people we can hold to account, or do we just need to say, oh, it's just art
2: style? The, well, I think the most immediate and accurate answer to that is that, yeah, it, it's less than fair to, let's say, hold Under Armour accountable for Mimicking the three percenters logo and iconography on their t shirts. But it's crucial to understand that for businesses seeking to make money, the bottom line is that once trends are embedded, and particularly once the political sting is a little bit whittled away at and neutralized, uh, that sort of takes away more and more of that wiggle room for debate and for pushback so like it's it's not as much a degree of direct accountability on behalf of retailers this is the part that actually is on us as citizens to continue to call things out as we see them and going back to normalization this is where into this regime we're just hit every day with this never-ending news cycle of horrors, shocks, and things that are far beyond the constraints of our society to the point in which stuff like this seems almost ridiculous to call out, and that's precisely Mm. how and why it has been able to embed itself so deeply. That's true normalization. So your advice to people, I mean,
0: the skull itself, that Punisher symbol that you've described, also has a place in Mexican culture, Day of the Dead, different people's cultural... Traditions suggest that it's fighting back against, you know, mortality. How do we confront this stuff while also being culturally sensitive?
2: Well, a lot of it has to do with being specific. So, for example, when when sort of outlining that thread within the essay about face, I recognize that danger. Uh, mindlessly drawing other cultural traditions and other purposes for the skull and its symbolic value into the discussion. So I had to sort of stick with a thread of three interrelated uses of the evolving uh, death's head skull and recognizing that the death's head, as we see, like whether it's the Punisher or whether it's the Totenkopf used by Nazi Germany, has a very different History that needs to be distinguished from the the Latin American tradition and elsewhere. But we can still speak up. Oh, we must. We're far, far beyond the point in which a lot of these signifiers, a lot of these canaries in the coal mine, are in danger of being normalized. It is done, it's already normalized. I I think every day that passes, in which, and and I'm guilty of this too, I'm very guilty of it. we have so many battles to pick and choose. We, we do need to trust each other to be able to pick up causes that we don't have the time, the bandwidth to do ourselves. Uh, but these little things really matter as well. We're talking about our ability to observe and remember facts and to be able to contextualize them with our personal experiences. And we're at grave risk of losing the ability to use that constructively when we're letting little things like style, aesthetic. These normalizing components, when we let them slide, it has an impact.
0: You did also collaborate with John Lewis in the beautiful graphic story of the march from Selma, Selma to uh, Montgomery, march. And that's the one that got you the National Book Award. Is that the answer, to tell those other stories as vividly, as persuasively?
2: Uh, That's one of our missions. When when Congressman Lewis, when Andrew Aydin and I embarked upon the journey of making March, we perceived it clearly as a roadmap to change not only the successes of the movement, but the failures of the movement and the recognition that the same modes of resistance and the same kind of nonviolent revolution isn't going to happen in the same way at the same time. So working very hard to equip people of all ages in the 21st century with the tools and the revitalized history they need to actually continue making good trouble, continue speaking out. These things don't go away because problems aren't neatly fixed and packed away. And I think you know, that became more and more evident as the trilogy went on. We, we watched the temperature change in the room over the course of those four years in which the three of us made mm. March. And it remains more vital now than I think when we embarked on the project. Mm. Do you use
0: graphic art? To reach different audiences or because you can do things in graphic art that you can't do in text or a movie
2: i'd say for part one of that i choose comics because i love comics and they do have a they do have unique strengths in storytelling that activate us as readers in ways that no other medium can but there is a universal quality there is an incredible accessibility issue with comics as a medium and as a language, but in, especially in terms of like an essay like About Face, the ability to navigate this train of thought in a linear fashion, but simultaneously be able to contextualize different points in real time while moving through a comic. These are strengths of comics which allow some ideas to be crystallized in a more powerful way than could be done in any mm. other medium.